Welcome to Eternal Leadership, a show dedicated to equipping and inspiring leaders to accomplish what God has created in them. I'm Steve Ryder, co-founder and co-host, running solo on this one. My partner, John Ramstead, was going to be a part of this interview, but he took a little detour on his trip back from Oz Hillman's Summit. He took a little detour from Oz Hillman's Summit to go stop in Naples, Florida to visit his father, who turns 92 today. And so I want to say happy birthday to John's dad. And John, we love you. We miss you. This is going to be a great one. But he actually blessed me and said, Steve, take this one. Go for it. You know our guest today. And so I'm running solo on this. And you just heard our guest say, wow. Our guest today is Warwick (laughs) Fairfax. And Warwick has an amazing story. And I really want people to understand I'm going to tease because in part it was was teased in the title that Warwick has a story of losing a family media empire, a multi-billion dollar media empire, but yet he has pivoted and taken direction in his life and is really now working in strengths. And there are lessons in here for listeners that I want you to stay tuned for because this is one that I have been looking forward to since the day that I was introduced to Warwick by our mutual friend, Gary Schneeberger, who I used to work with at Focus on the Family, and he's working with you now, Warwick. So, Warwick, thanks for coming on, my man. Thanks, Steve. Really appreciate uh, you and John having me. And yeah, thank you very much. All right, so we teased a little bit in the title and the description and what I just said about your history, where you came from. So go ahead and just start us from the beginning and catch listeners up to speed for to where you are now. Yeah, well, I grew up in a 150-year-old family media business in Australia. It was one of the dominant media organizations that had uh, the equivalent uh, in Australia of uh, the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, sort of the main quality papers, as well as TV, radio, newsprint mill, magazines. I mean, it was a large operation. So it was founded, as I say, 150 years ago, actually by somebody who came out from England who was a strong believer, elder in his church, great dad great husband. I mean, really, as a businessman for Christ, you know, it's really hard to get better than him. So kind of over the generations, company got bigger, faith got a little bit more, uh, I suppose, a bit more nominal, perhaps, through the generations. And so when my dad died in early 87, he was in his 80s at the time. I felt that, uh, as did my parents, the company had drifted a bit from uh, the ideals of the founder, that it wasn't being well run. And so I decided, I was 26 at the time, uh, fresh out of Harvard Business School, uh, to launch a $2.25 billion Australian dollar takeover. Again, in my youth and naivety, I thought something needed to be done. And uh, so off I went, but uh, from the beginning, things went wrong. Uh, some family members sold out. Uh, we ended up having too much debt. And three years later, uh, Australia had gotten a big recession, and the company went uh, bankrupt under my watch. So my desire had been to stop it from being taken over. That was certainly another concern of mine. And so what I was trying to do, I ended up accomplishing the opposite. Rather than mm. saving it, we ended up losing it. So, uh, yeah, it was a very traumatic several years and uh, leading up to it. So, um, yeah. How did you handle 
that personally and how did it affect your family? It was rough. Some other family members didn't really understand why um, I did that. They didn't necessarily think it was necessary and it may or may not have been. It was rough because there'd been rifts in my family going back decades. Some other family members tried to remove my dad as chairman in 1976, successfully doing that. So obviously age 15, that was pretty traumatic. And uh, so there'd been some rifts, but yeah, so that wasn't easy on family members. Certainly wasn't easy on me. Uh, My whole life had been focused on preserving the company and um, trying to continue it on for more generations hence, you know, I did my undergraduate at Oxford, like my dad and some other relatives, worked in banking and Wall Street, Harvard Business School. Not necessarily because that's what I wanted to do, but it was sort of like a duty on a country thing, whatever mm. was necessary to preserve. Mm. So once that ended, it's like my purpose in life is now done. Now what? So it was, um, it was traumatic. And, you know, the other thing that was tough is I came to Christ at an evangelical Anglican church at Oxford. So I guess I felt like, well, surely God must want to resurrect the company and the ideals of the founder. Not so much Jesus lives on the front page, but just more how people are treated and honored and all that. And so I thought, well, clearly that must be God's plan. How can it not be? I'm a believer. He was a believer. How can it not be God's plan for me to resurrect the company, at least whether it needed resurrecting is a matter of opinion, but that's what I thought at the time. So I felt like God had a plan and I blew it. So from a believer's standpoint, obviously I was young, the theology was a bit suspect, but uh, if God wants something to happen, it'll happen. But I wasn't thinking that at the time. I was just thinking he had a plan and I blew it. So that was just, that was probably one of the single biggest devastating moments to recover from. So you said that your great-grandfather who started this? What, or was it your great, great? Yeah, great, great. It was five generations ago, a l- very long and, time. <laughs> and so he started it with a very faith-based center core of who he was. And you said you accepted Christ at Oxford. What right. was the faith journey of your family in between? Well, that's an interesting question. So, you know, he just treated people well, as I say, in Elderly's Church. The other neat story is uh, when he came out to Australia, we, you know, he had uh, nothing. and uh, He'd worked in newspapers in England. So some elders at his church helped gather some money together to help him buy a share in the local paper, the, what ended up being the City Morning Herald. So that's pretty amazing. Um, City Morning Herald in what town? Uh, in Sydney. Yeah, yeah. In yeah, Sydney. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, what happened, his his son was definitely a very strong person of faith. But, you know, as the money and the status increased, I guess the level of evangelical faith, uh, you know, that people are always people of faith in a general sense of my family, but it became more traditional, not necessarily evangelical, like my dad, who I respected immensely. He definitely had a faith, but it was more of a ecumenical there are different roads and different paths. And so, you know, that was really it. In fact, there's one uh, heart-wrenching letter by my grandfather, John Fairfax's son, in which he writes a letter to his adult sons, adult children, and said, you know, beseeching them to, you know, put Christ first, put church first, and, you know, don't give up their first love. I mean, you could see he's pleading with his kids, but, you know, why did he write that letter? He must have been concerned spiritually with where they were. Mm-hmm. Not that they were bad people, but 
just the the Christ-centeredness, it would seem between the lines he felt was drifting. So that was a very sad letter to read, I have to say, when I came across it. And then you said your dad was 87 when he passed and you were 26 at the time? Yeah. Did you have any other sibling? Obviously, he had you late in life, but... Yeah, my dad was married three times and I was from the third marriage. And, you know, the sad thing is more money and power and, I don't know, seemed like more marriages seemed to follow, sadly. But, um, yeah, he had some other kids, a couple of kids by his first marriage and one by his second marriage and then me and my younger adopted brother and sister by the third marriage. So uh, there's a big gap. Yeah. But none of your siblings were in the family business at all? Well, I had an older half-brother who was involved and then some cousins. And so certainly the takeover, um, you know, caused a lot of hard feelings at the time, which, you know, was since mostly um, patched up. But, yeah, they obviously didn't think it was necessary. And uh, certainly if you, uh, you know, Google me, it's not favorable. It's something like, you know, young, hot-headed kid who could have had it all blew it. So that's the conventional wisdom. And, you know, like with a lot of conventional wisdoms, there's probably some degree of, uh, uh, of truth. You know, I, my motives, I think, were good. You know, whether it was really necessary, uh, whether there was a better way of doing it, I don't know. Yeah, it was a complex thing. How are those relationships now? Well, my, my older half-brother, who was in his 80s when he died about a year and a half or so ago, uh, maybe a couple of years ago now. So we patched things up afterwards. And I'd say relations are, are pretty good with everybody. And it wasn't all of the family, just a few that were involved in the family business. But, you know, did they think it was really necessary what I did? No, I'm sure, um, you know, they, they still don't. But, and it may not have been. But, no, I think it's, yeah, we pretty much uh, patched it up at, um yeah, it was a big thing in many ways. What do you think, looking back now, where you are, what was the biggest mistake that you made? Well, there was a few. I mean, probably one of the biggest ones was, um, you know, I wasn't cut out to be some Rupert Murdoch, you know, take charge, no-nonsense leader. I'm a sort of reflective advisor. Yeah, I'm not somebody that enjoys making 100 decisions before breakfast. I mean, it's just... It's just not in my wiring. So it was just, it was a very bad fit. Yes. I mean, it probably would have been more prudent to wait. I mean, it's a complex thing because the company was about 50% uh, controlled by the family, the rest by the public and the stock price of the company was rocketing up in early 87, which meant the market felt it was in play. And that, you know, with my dad dying, maybe some family members would sell out. So there were corporate raiders lurking. So you know, there were things going on, but, you know, there may well have been a uh, better path. And uh, I and my parents may not have agreed with the way management was going. But, you know, that's the challenge is you never know what those alternative scenarios would have looked like. But just for me personally, it was just very difficult for me. My whole sense of self was this is my legacy. My dad's died. I don't want to disappoint my dad. Sort of the duty on a country thing. But it just, uh, nothing is forever, you know, and uh, nothing should be higher than the Lord in our life. And uh, I don't know, there was probably uh, hindsight, uh, something that was, um, I wouldn't say an idol, but was getting on that path. And so, yeah, it just wasn't a good fit for who I was. And um, that's probably the biggest mistake. I mean, there's a few in there, <laughs> to say the least. 
you mentioned that you feel like you're a reflective advisor. You're mm-hmm. not someone that'll make, you're not Rupert Murdoch who will make right. your decisions before breakfast. Right. Was there anyone in your life, in your inner circle that was telling you these are not your strengths? This is not who you're made to be? No, there really wasn't. I mean, I was, you know, living with a few other young guys at the time, other believers would, well, I guess in the middle of leading this up to the take up to the take up. So I didn't know them that well. I mean, I had some older friends and I mean, there were some believers that said, boy, you know, we've been praying for years that the Lord would raise up somebody in the heart of the media. And this is an answer to prayer. And, uh... you know, people mean well, and they may genuinely believe it, but I didn't really have anybody saying, is this a really good fit for you? And truth be told, if they'd said that to me, would I have been able to listen? And I don't know, because I was so focused on what my father wanted and my parents and yeah, in the back of my mind, what some other families did, removing him as chairman, which I thought was very unjust. So there was probably subconsciously some of that element. But no, I mean, it's, um, I don't, there really wasn't, but I don't, honestly, I can't say definitely I would have listened. I don't know. So you surrounded yourself with a lot of people your age. Did you have any of your dad's advisors trying to talk to you, trying to get in, trying to give advice? That's a great question. Uh, because honestly, when I hear that aspect, I'm reminded yeah. of Solomon's son, Rehoboam who rejected, who surrounded himself with all of his advisors and right. rejected his father's advisors and only listened yeah. to this, didn't have a large pool of differing ages and experience yeah, yeah. that were pouring into him. No, that's a great question. I mean, the, the younger people I know, I didn't really ask them for advice and they didn't really offer it. Uh, you know, they were just my housemates, if you will. And, uh, you know, obviously in a small group, but I don't know that my dad, I mean, my dad had a few but I didn't really reach out to them. Mm. I had my own, you know, investment banking experts, but that's really different than what you're talking about. Um, and this happened shortly after you yeah. had graduated Harvard Law School. So you hadn't really been in back in Australia too long. Right, right. Yeah, I just finished Harvard Business School and came yeah. back. And um, yeah, so it all, and some of this happened on the phone while I was over there. So, oh. you know, I just felt like I knew what my dad wanted, but who knows what he would have thought about the takeover. But I mean, these are great questions. I wish I had uh, good answers for you. <laughs> yeah. So it was a very, very public failure. Yes. What happened in the aftermath of that? Well, the company is still going. You know, it's not like people lost their jobs. And yes, people have written books about management over the last 30 years and how well they've done or not done. And newspaper companies all over the world have not done very well, which is a whole nother story. But uh, so the company went on. Uh, but me personally, it was devastating. Uh, my wife's American. So in the early 90s, we came back to the US because uh, I wanted to start uh, my life over again. And I was very public back in uh, Sydney. You know, it was on the TV news and at least back then was somewhat recognizable. So yeah, I just uh, came here just trying to figure out, well, Lord, now what? My whole purpose in life was to, uh, you know, restore the company, the image of the founder, see it well run, preserve family control, and everything I wanted to achieve is, is just now gone. And I was certainly a prime participant in its fall with my false assumptions, naivety, and uh, 
etc. So it was really devastating. As I said, I felt like I'd let God down. So it took me a long time to figure out, you know, what is my purpose in life? Were there people around you at the time pouring in and kind of building you up or did you not have a community of people? Yeah. I mean, I think um, the current church I go to, uh, we weren't there at the time. I mean, yeah, I definitely had a few people, uh, but it's a hard thing. It's a hard journey. People want to help, but uh, sometimes it's a journey that, you know, you and the Lord have to um, figure out together. But yeah, so that was sort of the road. What were some of those low points? What helped pull you out? Well, I mean, the low point was, uh, yeah, I'd let my dad down, my family down. I never wanted to cause alienation. Mm-hmm. But because of what I did and how I did, I caused alienation within the family. Now, it's easy for me to say, well, yeah, some of these same family members sort of stabbed my dad in the back and tried to throw him out as chairman. Well, let's say that's true, which I feel it was doesn't necessarily justify what I did and the alienation it caused. So, yeah, I mean, that was just not a pretty picture of, you know, look what I've done in terms of the family. Um, And then letting my dad down, letting, feeling like I'd let God down. God had a plan and I blew it. And then, you know, what do I do now? It's like everything I touch, I just screw up. I mean, Mm. it's not like I'm unintelligent. You know, it's like Oxford, Harvard Business School, I must have some degree of intelligence, but it's like, if I had all this education and how could I have been so dumb? I mean, it just, you know, I mean, yeah, it was all very emotionally involved with my dad and all, but it was, yeah, those are some of the low points. Um, In terms of how I picked myself up, it was really my faith. Without my faith in Christ, I don't know, it would have been like jump off a bridge or I don't know quite what, but, you know, I sort of realized that it's only, you know, he doesn't love us because of what we do. He loves us because with his children. And so that sense of he loves us unconditionally. He doesn't want us to do all these things. He doesn't need, you know, Fairfax media saying, you know, Jesus loves you on the front page or whatever. Not that I wanted that, but he doesn't need me and he doesn't need Fairfax media. He just loves me because of that sense of unconditional love and the truth in uh, scripture. um, I mean, I have many, favorite scriptures. I mean, one, um, there's several, but one sort of, uh, the world and its desires pass away, but the man that does the will of God lives forever. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, the world's desires and plans are irrelevant. So it's really my faith that got me through this. I mean, it, it just made me cling to the scriptures and to the Lord even more. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. You've heard that old Harry Truman quote, leaders are readers, right? Well, John and I are big fans of a service that we subscribed to last year called Blinkist. Blinkist provides summaries of many of the top books on the market. Each book summary is divided into short blinks, hence the name Blinkist, and most of the summaries you can read in less than 15 minutes. If you're interested in leadership, check out The 7 Habits of Highly Effective People. Or if you want to brush up on your marketing, how about Purple Cow by Seth Godin? Check out a Blinkist seven-day free trial so you can have access to the entire library of more than 2,500 summaries. Their app is well-designed, and you can export the summaries to your Kindle, or you can do what I do is listen to the audio while I'm reading the Blinks before bed to get that extra reinforcement of those ideas. If that sounds interesting to you, you can find our affiliate link embedded in the summary of this MP3 or go to eternalleadership.com slash blink. 
That's eternalleadership.com slash blink. By using that link, it's an easy way for you to help support the costs associated with producing this show. I love Blinkist, John loves Blinkist, and we are confident that most of our listeners will love them too. Like I said, the link is embedded in the summary of this MP3 or go to eternalleadership.com slash blink. Thanks. You said something that really touched me. You felt like everything you touched, you screwed up. Yeah. I can think back of my season of burnout after I left working for Dr. Dobson. Um, I've talked about it on the show a couple of times, but mm-hmm. my last two months, I physically burned out. I mean, I was working, I was doing two daily radio broadcasts with half the staff I had at Focus on the Family to do one. And it was killing me. I couldn't step back from the workload and kind of figure out. And that season, after I had left, I mean, I'd lost 20 pounds my last two months, wasn't eating, wasn't sleeping. It was a very difficult six months, hard road of recovery for me. For you, did you have any sort of physical manifestations from that? Because I know a lot of people, when they'll go through something very difficult, it'll manifest in back pain, it'll manifest in ulcers, it'll manifest in some sort of physical way. No, you know, I didn't. I mean, other than, you know, my faith, the other thing that got me through this is my wife is a strong person of faith and, you know, I started, I had young kids and so there was a sense of new life and they didn't, you know, my wife didn't care about any of that. And no, I never really had physical pain, uh, but it was between my faith and my family. Uh, it was tough, but gradually, step by step, you know, I began to resurrect my self-esteem and, you know, baby steps, but, you know, um, gradually came back. What were some of those things that you did to help? What were some of those baby steps to yeah. resurrect that self-esteem? Well, I had no idea. You know, people grow up thinking, gee, you know, what would I like to do in life? When you're young, it's like, you know, fireman, astronaut, or whatever image you have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never had those thoughts. So I had to like start thinking about, well, what do I want to do? That was a question I'd never asked. It was an irrelevant question. What my desires are don't matter. Mm. So some of the baby steps is because I'd worked in a bank on Wall Street. I was, you know, somewhat okay at financial analysis. So I ended up working in a local aviation services firm in Maryland doing financial and business analysis. And they didn't know anything about my past and, you know, the, yeah. the media thing. And I yeah. didn't really advertise it, but I felt like, okay, I can do financial analysis. So that was like a baby step. And then um, in about 2003, I did a, mid-career assessment with an executive coach. And um, she said to me, well, you know, you have a great profile for executive coaching. Of course, I said, what's that? And, (laughs) you know, and that began another step because I realized I am reflective. And so, uh, you know, love asking questions. And um, I felt like I was kind of dishonoring the Lord a bit in terms of where I was with that aviation services firm. I mean, I was doing well, getting good performance appraisals, but you know, I wasn't using all the gifts that God had given me, which is not what he wants. He wants us to be humble, but he also wants us to use what he's given us. You know, you can have the two can ex- coexist. Yeah. So then through executive coaching, I began to realize I kind of had a leadership voice in the questions I was asking. And people would say, boy, that's a great question. And well, thank you for that point. And I didn't even realize what I was saying or asking. I was just in the flow. So that was another baby step getting into executive coaching. And then. And what was the timetable that you got into coaching? Uh, it was about 2003, 2004. 
So that was sort of a step on the way. I don't do as much of that now because I'm more focused on writing and, you know, crucible leadership and stuff, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. But, um, and then from there, another step on the journey was, um, yeah, I got very involved at the, you know, non-denominational church I'm part of here in Annapolis, Maryland. And so I became an elder there and uh, been on the board of my kids' school, which is a large Christian school. And I found that being on a board was a great fit because for me, being a reflective advisor, it was perfect. You know, I was able to ask questions, make points, but, you know, with a, a team of like-minded people. Uh, so that was a great fit. So it, it came slowly, but certainly the 90s was a tough decade. Mm. That was really tough. But gradually, I came to see there are things that I can do that are in my sweet spot and things I can do and get respected for. Yeah, it was a journey, but coming back from that kind of trauma, any kind of trauma, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes years and everybody's path is going to be different. If you could go back and talk to your 25-year-old self before you started that journey, you were still at Harvard at the time, and could impart wisdom, what are the three most important tips that you would tell your 25-year-old self? Well, the first would be um, worship the Lord your God only. Don't worship anything else, any other idol before the Lord. And while John Fairfax Limited has a great legacy, John Fairfax was a great man of God, that's great, but that's not necessarily your legacy. Follow the Lord, not some idol or some dead ancestor. You know, whether I would have listened, I don't know. But that's what I would have, that's certainly one thing. And the second is, I mean, there's probably several, but what happened to your dad, that's not on you. It's not your job to kind of, you know, make up for what was done to him or something, or it's not up to you to live in your dad's shoes, your ancestor's shoes. That's not who you are. You know, you need to think and pray about what the Lord would, would have for you. It's not necessarily this and maybe... Um, don't be afraid of talking to other family members about what you see. They may or may not listen, but just don't make assumptions that they won't listen. So, yeah, I mean, those are several, but certainly you worship the Lord, not any, I mean, no matter how good it may look, it can still be an idol. So chances are there are people right now listening that they are either in the thick of losing their business or they've just been fired from a job, mm -hmm. or they've lost a job, any other pieces of advice you would want to impart from lessons that you've learned that would carry over for that listener right now? I think you have to ask yourself, where is your identity? For most people, certainly a lot of guys, their identity is in what they do. That's very dangerous. You might be flying high today, but we're all going to face crucibles. We're all going to face losses. Life is never smooth. God didn't design it that way in his infinite wisdom. It's easy to say, oh, I believe in Jesus. But as, as you'll hear many pastors say, is the Lord the Lord of your life? You can believe in Jesus, but not necessarily give the keys of the kingdom over to the Lord. Most mm. of us understand that truth. Mm. And so you've really got to say, okay, my identity is not in my job. It should purely be in the Lord. And then, you know, be who you were designed to be. I don't believe God makes mistakes. 
that God designed you a certain way, that there are always aspects of, of us, parts of ourselves that we don't like, that we wish could be different. But, you know, that's not really going to change. If you're an introvert, you're going to stay an introvert. If you're an extrovert, if you're whatever it is, if you're artistic, if you're technical, those things are pretty hardwired. So accept that and say, well, Lord, you know, what would you have for me that somehow in some broad sense or more specific sense furthers your kingdom, but in a way that uses my gifts, abilities, and passions? You know, what is that? I mean, I wish somebody had asked me those questions to your earlier question when I was 25. I don't know what I would have said. I think I would have been clueless, but, you know, I think I would have thought about it. So those are probably some of the things is you just cannot have your identity in what you do. That's probably the starting point. So you mentioned crucible moments. Yeah. Talk about what a crucible moment is and why you chose that as a name for your website, the upcoming book. The upcoming book is going to have crucible in the title, right? Absolutely. Okay. So your upcoming book and everything that you are doing now, crucible leadership is the name. Talk about what a crucible moment is and how that translates over into what you're doing now. Well, a crucible, it's a life-changing moment. It could be a series of moments. It really tests who you are. It could be the loss of a business, loss of a job, could be a health challenge. It's something that you feel my life is forever different afterwards. It's not like a minor speed bump. It's sort of a life-changing moment. And so when you face those times, it's an opportunity to reflect. Sometimes it may be your fault. Sometimes it may not be your fault. You know, in my case, certainly a lot of it was my fault, but part of the uh, family dynamics have been going on for you know, generations before me. So there's a mix of factors. But see, you've got to discern, okay, well, can some good come out of that? Maybe you know, if you're a victim of some uh, abuse, what have you, you might have this sense of, I want to prevent, well, I want to help other people who've gone through this. I understand their pain. Alcoholics and Alcoholics Anonymous, similar thing. There's a sense of you want to help others. So I think that can be helpful. And that was somewhat therapeutic for me as I felt, you know, if I'm talking about crucible leadership and how you bounce back from adversity, if that can help other people, then that was very motivating. Uh, one of the kind of pivotal moments I haven't touched on was also about 10 years ago when the pastor of my church was giving a talk on the life of David as he was escaping from Saul, who was jealous of his success, and he's hiding in a cave, feeling sorry for himself. And my pastor wanted to give a sermon on, you know, righteous man falsely persecuted. I says, well, I don't know that I'm falsely persecuted. I brought some, a lot of it on myself. But as I talked about for about seven minutes, my story and what I felt God had taught me and some of the things we've chatted about, the fact that it resonated with so many people and yet I don't think there were any sort of ex-media moguls in the congregation that I know of, you know? Yeah. So how can they relate? So that was really pivotal for me and I feel like maybe there's a broader message about bouncing back from failure and discovering who you are and trying to have what I call a, a life of significance, which is really fulfilling a higher purpose, helping other people. If you're a believer, obviously a life of significance has particular definition, but um, yeah, I think that's probably the key in terms of what crucible leadership is and how you look at it. You have a book coming out, mm -hmm. likely later this year, still in manuscript form, I believe, right? 
Yeah, and you know what it will cover as crucible leadership does is just some key elements of crucible leadership. Is um, you know it starts with often a refining moment from a crucible, as we've discussed, figuring out how you were designed, which we've also discussed, and then based on that, you begin to have a vision for your life that's in in line with how you're wired and your passions, God-given passions, and then hopefully bring it to reality. So it's what the book seeks to do is talk about some of those elements. It talks about my life more thematically, as well as some uh, inspirational uh, biblical figures, historical figures. There's illustrations of key aspects of leadership, whether it's vision, character, how you get people on board with a vision. But the spine of the whole book is really my story, in which I'm pretty unsparing about my own mistakes and uh, how I was so uh, wed to uh, the family and... uh, vision of the founder rather than trying to figure out what does it mean for my life? What's my role? I think that's absolutely refreshing because I just finished listening to a biography about Andrew Carnegie. And one of the things that they talked about consistently was that his autobiography was all about successes, never about any failures and whitewashed a lot of the failures and whitewashed a lot of his past. And we see that throughout history. When people write autobiographies, they'll often just ignore certain aspects, but you being open and vulnerable. uh, uh, This is a book I'm really looking forward to digging into. And we will have you back on to talk more about the concepts in that book to unpack that a little bit more. Warwick, what's your vision for crucible leadership? What do you want to see come out of it? My goal with this is really originally was to help leaders, but I've realized it's really to help anybody that has gone through crucible experiences and wants to see purpose in life, wants to see their life have meaning, wants to have a life of significance. I mean, that could be some big nonprofit or some corporation, or it could be just some neighborhood initiative. The size is really irrelevant. It's more the sense of you know, I'm really looking to speak to people that want to make a difference in their life. I come from a Christ-centered perspective, but I'm a share with rather than a share at kind of person. So it could be, you know, people of different faiths, different perspectives, anybody that really wants to make a difference in life, wants their life to count, wants to help other people, and somehow wants to link what they've been through in the crucible moments to, uh, you know, the, the seeds of how you can often help others is often located in your crucible moment. So it's really, those are the people that I'm looking to reach in the book and the website and blogs and what have you. So how do people find that? Well, they can go to my website, uh, crucibleleadership.com or just uh, Google crucible leadership by Warwick Fairfax, uh, either one. And Warwick is spelled W-A-R-W-I-C-K. It's a strange Australian uh, English spelling deal, but... um, Yeah, so if they go there, they can sign up for my uh, blog. I'm active on social media, LinkedIn and Facebook. In fact, at the bottom of the page, you can uh, get a free uh, Crucible Leadership Workbook in which it helps you get into some of these principles and, you know, uh, start the journey of figuring out your own plan and your own vision for life. So go to crucibleleadership.com. Yeah. Scroll down to the bottom if you want to connect with Warwick on LinkedIn like him on Facebook, follow what he's doing, sign up for the email list, all that stuff. I am a big fan of this man and Warwick, we will definitely have you back on once that book is published. 
Well, thank you so much, Steve. It's great to chat with you and thank you for what you're doing and uh, John's doing in a ton of leadership. I love the title and, you know, love, uh, love the mission that you have. Any last thoughts, any last parting wisdom you would like to leave with the listeners? I'd say when you go through a crucible experience, especially if it's just happened, it may feel like life's over and you just lost respect from a bunch of people and some of that may be deserved. Some of that may be, you know, you're losing respect from people whose identity is bound up in some success. So maybe that's okay to move on to friends who like you for who you are. But I guess the message would be life's not over. I know it's rough, but just try to figure out, okay, what are the lessons here? And um, what would the Lord have for me? 